Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're pressing on in our series in the life of Abraham with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be looking at Genesis 15 and the Abrahamic Covenant in a talk titled Promise and Patience. As always, we do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed and been blessed by this podcast, we would love it if you'd leave us a five-star review, as that does help get our show in front of new listeners. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis 15 and the Abrahamic Covenant. After these things, notice that connects us up with the chapter that went before. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, but one who comes forth from your own loins, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now, look toward the heavens and tell the stars, if you are able to tell them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. And then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And Abram said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain, remember Abram had prayed, how shall I know? The response is, Know for certain that your seed will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, or they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet perfected. Shalom is actually the word here. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, a smoking oven and a flaming torch that passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, or literally cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your seed I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. This is big covenant-making chapter, and it falls down into two sections, as your notes point out. First of all, God's word of promise, verses 1 to 7, and then God's seal of his oath. We read in Hebrews that since God can swear by no one greater than himself, he swears by himself and adds an oath to his word, a seal, just as in the church. We have the word of promise in the Bible, 
And then we have the seal of the Lord's Supper that is added to it that is confirming it. Our theology tells us that these are seals of the covenant. They seal God's promise to us in a special way so that we know for certain the things that we've heard in the Bible. The sacraments cause us to know them for certain because the sacraments recall the sacrifice of Christ. The same thing is going on here. God gives a promise, and then he gives a seal, and the seal is a revelation of the sacrifice of Christ. When we see what Christ has done, we know that God will keep his word. And that's the same structure that we have in worship. We hear the word of God, and then we are reminded of what Christ has done, and then we know it. We know for certain. So let's look, first of all, at God's promise. Well, we can look at the purpose of the passage to show that God would recreate the world and give it to the seed of Abram. Now, that may not immediately be obvious to us, because we're kind of familiar with this passage and we don't connect it up with Genesis chapter 1. But as we go through, we'll see that. We'll see how this connects to Genesis 1 and how the idea is that God would make a new creation and recreate the world and give it to the seed of Abram as a second Adam. All of those ideas are here. So that's the purpose of the passage. And the context of the passage is chapter 14. In chapter 14, well, coming up to chapter 14, God had told Abram, I'm going to give you all this land. And if you'll look to the north, south, east, and west, it'll all be yours. And so then, there's this big war in the land. And it turns out that Chedor Laomer is more or less governing the land. And Chedor Laomer takes dominion over all these Canaanite people. And while Abram with his 318 men, is able to pursue Chedor Laomer and get Lot back and get a lot of spoils back. The fact is, Abram, powerful prince and sheik as he was, was no match for Chedor Laomer. And, of course, he could anticipate that Chedor Laomer didn't take kindly to being whipped and driven out of the land and that he would be coming back. And so that's what's in Abram's mind. second thing that's just happened is Abram came back with all these spoils of battle, but he refused to keep any of them. He gave them back to the king of Sodom and the other kings. He gave a tithe to Melchizedek, and he refused to take any himself. He refused to take the rewards. So Abram is nervous. He's nervous about what Chedor Laomer is going to do. And God comes to him, the word of the Lord. It's kind of an expression here, perhaps referring to Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, the word of God. The word of the Lord, after these things, after the battle, came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear. You don't need to be afraid of Chedor Laomer. You don't need to be afraid of these enemies because I will be your shield. I'll protect you. And your reward will be very great. You didn't take the reward from the king of Sodom. And because of that, I will reward you and I will give you a great reward because of your patience. Now, all of this takes place in a vision, we're told. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And this vision goes all the way down to the end of the chapter. And the question that we should ask is, why does this happen in a vision? Not every time God speaks to Abram is it in a vision. Sometimes he comes and talks with him face to face. Here it's in a vision. Why? Well, visions in the Bible have a particular kind of an association. And it's in a vision that a man is caught up into heaven to see what is going on in heaven and to participate in the heavenly council. 
Isaiah has a vision and he sees the Lord and he sees the seraphim and he participates in the heavenly council. Other visions that take place always have to do with being taken into heaven and helping the council deliberate and make decisions. And Abram is such a man. He is called a prophet later on, and prophet in the Bible means council member. You get to be in the heavenly council. And that seems to be the case here. Abram is caught up in a vision, and there's God, and although we're not told it, the angels and the rest of the heavenly host are there about. And Abram himself is taken into some of the deliberations here. Because after God gives a promise, Abraham talks back, you know, how will I know that this comes to pass? He brings his petition before the council, what will you give me since I am childless? And then when God makes a promise, he says, how will I know? What is the confirming sign that will be given? So I would say, and of course you can't be too dogmatic about this, but it would seem that it takes place in the vision because there's the idea of the council, the heavenly council. And the amazing thing is that God, who is already a council of three and one and doesn't need our advice, and yet he asks Abraham. And later on at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we'll see this much more fully because God and Abraham really have a discussion about how Sodom is going to fare. Will you spare it for 50? Will you spare it for 40? That's the counsel at work, man talking to God, man praying to God. So that seems to be the purpose for this taking place in the vision. Now let's look at the promise. The promise of God has to do with the seed and the lamb, our basic themes that we're tracing here. Abram said, verse 2, O Lord God, covenant-keeping God, Jehovah, what will you give me in this reward you've promised? Since I don't have any children, and the heir of my house is Eliezer. And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, then one that's born in my house or adopted is my heir. Here we have the question of who is going to be the inheritor of the Abrahamic promise. Who is going to carry the seed down through history? Who is going to inherit the world? Is it Lot? No, it turned out not to be Lot. Lot has been disqualified now after chapters 12, 13, and 14. Lot's living in Sodom. He's just not going to make it. He's in heaven now, but as far as time and history are concerned, he tubed out. Now the second person in line is an adopted son of Abram, Eliezer of Damascus. We don't know much about Eliezer of Damascus. He's just mentioned here. But he's an adopted son. That's what this expression, one born at my house or a son of my house, here in verse 3. It means that he was adopted by having his ear circumcised. It's described for us in Genesis 21. If a man has a servant, and the servant loves his master and wants to stay with him forever, then he has to be adopted. And the servant takes him to the house and bores a hole in his earlobe and attaches his ear to the door of the house, not permanently, but just symbolically. And that blood ritual is called a circumcision of the ear, and it means that from then on that person is an adopted son. And that's what Eliezer of Damascus, this man used to live in Damascus, but he was converted by Abram. And he joined himself to Abram's household, and his ear had been punched and circumcised, and now he was the oldest of these adopted sons of Abraham. We saw last time that Abraham had 318 home-born servants, that is, adopted sons. And this man is the heir. Later on, Abram sends his most trusted servant to get a wife for Isaac. 
Remember that story? Abraham's servant goes and gets Rebecca, brings her back. That's probably the same man. And that gives us a little vignette of the truly faithful man. This man might have stood to inherit everything, and yet when Isaac comes, he's able to set that aside and work for Isaac's good and not grab things for himself. But God says, no, Eliezer of Damascus will not be your heir. It's going to be somebody that is born from your loins. The word of the Lord came to Abram, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who comes forth from your own body, your own inward parts, or loins, then he will be your heir. So now it will be a son. Of course, the first son is Ishmael. Will Ishmael be the seed? Well, no, it'll turn out that Ishmael isn't. It's Isaac. And so this question of who the seed is will continue. We haven't completely arrived at it yet. But now we've narrowed the focus of the seed to somebody that's actually going to come from Abram's loins. Now we have a real curious thing. God took him outside in the vision. Now, Abram is in a vision, and then he goes outside. And this is hard to imagine exactly what's going on there, but that's what we're told. In the vision, he goes outside. And God says, look toward the heavens and count the stars, or tell the stars, or evaluate the stars. The problem is the Hebrew can mean any of these things. Evaluate the stars, count up the stars. If you're able to count them, if you're able to evaluate them. And God said to him, so shall your seed be. And seed there is singular. And so Abram believed God, and God reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, we might say, well, seed's a collective noun. It refers to a vast multitude of Abraham's descendants. Possibly. But then maybe not. Because Paul in Galatians chapter 3 makes a big deal out of the fact that the word seed is singular. I'll just read it to you. Galatians 3, 15 and 17. Well, just verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, plural, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, singular, that is Christ. And what I'm saying is this, the law that came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. Go out and count the stars, and that's the way your seed in the singular is going to be. Seems a contradiction, or at least maybe a double saying here. Two things are being said at once. Well, there are three interpretations of this, and it's hard for me to choose among them, but we'll put them all out and you can think about them. The first is the vast multitude interpretation. That's the common one, the one we're most familiar with, that says, well, when he's told to go count the stars, that means he was supposed to go out there and try to count them up. You know, one, two, three, four, five, if you're able to do so, which nobody could do. And that's the way your seed is going to be. And in Hebrew, it's a collective noun, so at one and the same time, it refers to the vast multitude, but it also means that Jesus Christ, who would eventually come, would be like a star. He'd be the morning star, the day star, a bright light in a dark place, just as when he was born, it was a star of Bethlehem, that Jesus would be associated with the stars. That's possible. That's what a lot of the commentators will say, because it seems to them that that's the best way to read it. So the first interpretation is that Abraham would have a vast number of descendants like the stars of the heavens for multitude, which is not actually what's written here. It doesn't say for multitude, but that's implied, they say. And that ultimately this focuses in on one seed, Jesus Christ, and that's what Paul is getting at in Galatians 3. A second interpretation is the 12 constellations interpretation. 
And this goes back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, where many argue, and this was more popular a hundred years ago than it is today, but it's still a viable interpretation, I think. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heavens to separate the day and night, and let them be for signs and for appointed times and for days and years. First thing to said about them is that they're for signs. Now, what kinds of signs? Well, there are different kinds of signs or symbolisms in the heavens, but one of them that's very familiar is the 12 basic constellations of the zodiac that go through the year and that mark out the seasons of the year. And there's the lion, and there's the virgin, and there's the strong man who's wrestling with the serpent, and there are these constellations. And they were known in the ancient world, and so the theory goes that originally God designed these. The fact is, the stars don't look like the constellations. Or to put it another way, the constellations don't look like the stars. How many of you know the constellations? If you go out and look at the sky, you see them all. Just about nobody. Because they don't look like what they're supposed to be. If you wanted to say, let's look for Taurus the bull. Well, there's nothing up there that looks like a bull. The stars don't look like the constellations. They're just totally artificial, in a sense. Somebody drew them out and then memorized them. In the belt of Orion, most of us know, but the rest of Orion, do you know? Do you know where the rest of Orion is? The Big Dipper we know, but actually the Big Dipper is part of the Great Bear. Can you see the rest of the bear, or do you just see a dipper? Now, if you become real familiar, then you can see these things, but it has to be learned. And so... The idea and the argument is that God at some point, maybe with Noah, maybe way back at the beginning, set these pictures in the sky and taught men how to see them as symbols. And then the 12 constellations go with the 12 tribes of Israel. We know the Jews thought that way. They would put the designs of the zodiac in their synagogues with the 12 signs representing the 12 tribes. And if you look at the prophecies that Jacob gives in Genesis 49 and that Moses gives, it would seem that he's comparing the different tribes to different animals and it can square up if you work at it with the 12 constellations. And of course, sinful men perverted the constellations and began to worship the sun, moon, and stars and abuse the signs. And so we get astrology, which is perverted. But the truth is, these things were designed to reveal salvation. So now, this school of thought says, Abram went outside and he looked at the twelve constellations, and they all revealed Jesus Christ. There's the Lion of Judah. There's Taurus the bull that will die for the sins of the world. There's Hercules, actually the coming Savior, wrestling with the serpent. There's all these different revelations of Christ. See how attractive this interpretation can be. Abram goes up and he looks and he evaluates, doesn't count up, but evaluates, and the Hebrew can mean that easily. He evaluates the stars in their symbolic dimension, and that's what his seed in the singular is going to be. So then he says, ah, my seed will be the Messiah, the one who will fight the serpent, the lion who will come, so forth and so on. Makes it square real nice with Paul. Whether it's true, I don't know. But that's the second interpretation that you'll find. And then there's one more that's very interesting that's suggested by a French scholar named Barnouin, and that is what I call the earthly host interpretation. And Barnouin says that if you look in the book of Numbers, you'll find all these census figures. The tribe of Dan has so many people, and the tribe of Asher has so many people. And all of these numbers here, if you evaluate them properly, they all point to heavenly time cycles. 
the amount of time it takes for the planet Mars to go around and appear in the same place in the sky. That's called the synodical period of the planet Mars. It's not the amount of time it takes Mars to go around the sun. It's the amount of time it takes for Mars to go around the sky and come back to the same place it was, including its retrograde motion, if you know what this stuff is. Then there's the synodical period of the planet Saturn, how long it takes from Saturn to get from this place in the sky all the way around and then back and forth to the same place in the sky. There's a synodical period for each of the planets, and there's a certain number of days. It takes 777 days for the planet Saturn to go around and come back in the same place as it was in the sky, that is, appearing with the same stars, if you're looking at it from the Earth. And Barnawing says, the fact is, all those numbers show up over and over again in these census figures. Now, God literally had all these people there in the wilderness, but he had them grouped by tribes around the tabernacle as his earthly host, grouped around his earthly palace as his army. And he says, in the providence of God, God organized history in such a way that just as in heaven the planets are organized around the sun, so on earth God's host is organized around his palace. And then he goes and he says, if you look at the lifespans of the early patriarchs in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, you'll find these same numbers show up. Lamech lived 777 years. Enoch lived 365 years. They're all astral figures. They had to do with the heavenly host. And so his interpretation would be that Abram goes out and Abram knows that the early patriarchs carried the seed line and were going to bring the Messiah, the Savior, into the world, and that their lifespans matched up with the heavenly host around the throne of God. So he knew, when he saw that, that his seed would also be like God's heavenly host arranged around his throne on earth. And that would point to that his would be the kingdom, the kingdom would come out of his loins, the new humanity gathered around God's throne, and the one seed who would be the captain of that host, Jesus Christ. Is that complicated enough for you? That's a complicated interpretation. But perhaps there's something to it. I don't know. One thing we know, that Abram, from looking at the stars, regardless of how he evaluated them, whether it was constellations or synodical periods or just sheer numbers of stars, he evaluated them and he believed that God was going to bring the Savior of the world through him and give him a new creation. And Abraham believed that, learned it from the stars. It's too bad we're so blind that we can't do that anymore. And God counted to him as righteousness. Some scholars have said, based on verse 6, that we should read, Then Abram amened the Lord. Then he believed in the Lord. Abraham actually said amen, they say, because that's the way it's written in Hebrew. That's possible interpretation. That's what amen means. It means... So be it. And when God made this promise to Abraham, Abram, Abram said, So be it. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. You see, God rewards righteousness, and he punishes sin. And God counts faith as righteousness. We shouldn't think that God rewards faith in the sense that if we have enough faith, we can manipulate God, go in to God and say, you know, I believe you're going to give me a new Cadillac, so if I just keep believing on it hard enough, one day a new Cadillac will appear. 
outside my house. That's the kind of a view of faith that you pick up sometimes. Magic faith. But that's not what it means. God rewards righteousness. But because we're sinners, we need the righteousness of Christ as our substitute. And God counts our trust in him as our righteousness and will give a reward. So when Abram believes in God and says amen, if he did say amen, and indicated to God, yes, I do believe that you will do these things, you're trustworthy, you don't lie, and you will give me these things if I'm faithful. And God made the promise to him again. And notice this Exodus language here. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. It should sound like something else to you. I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And here the language is, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I brought you out in the exodus that we saw a few weeks ago, and now I'm going to give you this land. It'll be yours. It'll belong to you and to your seed. Well, that's God's word of promise, and now, in the few minutes remaining, we've got to look at the more complicated part of the passage, which is God's oath. First thing that we find is that Abram comes and says, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? Seems rather brazen, since God has made this promise, and Abram has believed the promise, and he's already said amen. Why does he ask for something more? And the answer to that is that Abram knows the principle of two witnesses. And so Abram is not being presumptuous, but rather faithful when he says, How may I know? The word know has a strong sense there. Adam knew his wife Eve. Knowledge in the strong sense of actually experiencing this. How am I really going to have a full knowledge and sense of what this is going to be? What would you seal it with? How would you confirm it to me? Is what he's saying. There as a council member asking God for the testimony of the second witness. You've given me your word, now will you give me a seal? And God says, yes, I will. In verse 9, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Now, your notes tell you what these are. A heifer is a cow that hasn't yet calved. You've got a female goat, you've got a ram, which is a male sheep, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Now, the questions that we like to have answered is, why these particular animals? Uh, why these particular sexes of animals? Why are the animals chopped in half, but not the two birds? Why do they have to be three years old? Those are, I think, pretty good questions. But it's hard to find much thought on it. Most of the commentators don't know what to make out of it. And to be quite honest with you, I don't know quite what to make out of it either. We can say a few things, and then there are some other things that I'm not sure about. In the first place, we notice that there are five sacrifices. Five in the Bible is usually significant, number five. It's the number of foundations and of strength. It's the number that shows up over and over again in the tabernacle. Everything is in fives, and it has the idea of foundation and strength. It's the number that's used in the military in Israel. Israel came out five in a rank, ten men in a squad and five grouped in two groups of fives. Five is like the hand. It's strength and power and foundations. Maybe that connects up here. Maybe this is the idea of the foundation, a new foundation to the world, a new foundation to the kingdom of God through the sacrifice of all five of these. 
Perhaps these five are used as a symbol for the whole sacrificial system that will develop later on and is revealed in Leviticus. All those laws about all the different animals and when you sacrifice this one and when you sacrifice that one. Maybe that's all contained here in this initial sacrifice. It's hard to know, but those are possibilities. Secondly, we notice that the animals have to be three years old, and that's significant in the Bible. Three years has to do with the theme of a new beginning. God said to Noah, man is sinful from his youth, but from now on I will stop men's sinfulness in their youth. Before the flood, God allowed the sinfulness of man to go all the way down to destruction. But now he says, I will intervene in history while man is still in his youth, and I will cut off the sin and grant redemption. And so throughout the Bible, on the third day, you have these judgments and resurrections come. In the third year, you find these that happens over and over again. And here the idea seems to be, the three years is the idea of a new beginning. The sinfulness of man is cut off in its youth. The degeneration of the world is cut off in its youth in a new beginning. And finally, I have an observation on the heifer. The heifer is a cow that hasn't yet had a baby, hasn't yet calved. And that would seem to connect up with Sarah. Remember that Sarai, Abram's wife, has been barren, and God will in time open her womb and she'll have a child. And perhaps the death of this heifer is taking a substitute for the judgment on Sarah that will make it possible for her to conceive. Maybe that's the idea. At any rate, we don't really know exactly why these particular animals were chosen. But we can say a little bit more about why they were cut in half. God says in verse 10, He took all these to God, Abram did, and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut in half the birds. I don't know the differences. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now this has to do with the curse of the covenant. In the Bible, the curse of the covenant, if you break God's law, if you or I do, and God brings his curse upon us, the curse is to be ripped in half and devoured by the birds and the wild beasts. And that's what happens to Ahab and Jezebel. It says they were killed for their sins and the dogs came and ate them up. In Revelation chapter 19, all the vultures in the heavens are called to come and eat the dead army of all the enemies of God. It's the way the Bible sets it out. We're ripped in half and devoured by the birds. In the Bible, sometimes you see people tearing their garments. And when they tear their garments, they say, May the Lord do so to me and more also. In other words, just as I've torn my clothes in half, may the Lord tear me in half, and more also, if I don't keep this promise that I've made to you. So let's say that we're back in Bible times and you wanted to make it a promise to somebody and make it real strong. Then you would take your clothes and you would say, Look, I promise to you that I will do such and such. If I borrow this $100 from you, I promise that I'll have it back by next Friday. And how do I know you're going to have it back by next Friday? Well, you tear your clothes. May the Lord do so to me and more if I don't have this back to you by next Friday. May the Lord tear me in half and more let the birds eat me up. May the Lord tear me in half and also let the birds eat me up. May the Lord do so to me and more if I don't have this back to you. Now that's how you take an oath in the Bible. That's called 
a self-maledictory oath. That means you bring a curse on yourself if you don't fulfill it. Now, that's what's going on here. Abram starts to set this whole thing up that has to do with making covenants. And the way they would make covenants like that in the ancient world, if they were religious ones like this, and it's seen in Jeremiah 34, but we don't have time to look there. Two men make an agreement, and they take this pledge. They would cut animal in half, and they would walk in between the pieces. And when they walked in between the pieces, what they were saying is, if either one of us breaks this covenant, may we be torn in half like these animals are torn in half. So let's get the picture. Abram takes these animals, and he cuts them in half, and he lays them out, creating a pathway. Now the question is, who's going to walk between those animals and take that curse? If I don't keep this promise, may I be ripped in half, just like these animals are ripped in half. If I don't keep this promise, may the birds come and eat me up. Ah, Abram cut them in half and laid each half opposite the other, and the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Well, let's keep looking to get more facts before us. In verse 12 we read, Now when the sun was going down, this is all still in the vision, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, fear, terror, of great darkness fell upon him. The idea here is that the world is rolled back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis 1 verse 2 where it says the world was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Not all the way back to Genesis 1 and the world would cease to exist and God would start anew, but all the way back to that dark state at the beginning. First of all, we have a sunset. That means it starts to get dark. It also indicates the beginning of a new day. Remember, evening and morning, and a new day is dawning. Then we have night. All this stuff happens in the night. And that connects up with Passover, as we've seen in the previous chapters, a transition from wrath to grace during the night. God will change things during the night so that when the sun comes up, we have a new day and a new world. Then there's fear. Why is Abram afraid? Because of judgment. He knows that the old world has fallen in sin and it has to be judged before God can make a new creation. And so there's fear that comes upon him. And finally we're told that Abram goes into deep sleep. Now, deep sleep is a translation of a Hebrew word that's a real technical term. It's a technical term for a state that's near death. And people who go into deep sleep either die or else God appears to them and gives them new life, as it were, from the dead. And I've given you a bunch of verses here in your notes that you could look at. But you'll find that when people go down into deep sleep, that's a place where they're almost about to die, or else it's a place where God appears to them and gives them new life. And Abram goes down into this deep sleep, and he sees his covenant-making ceremonies. Now we'll try to tie all that together in just a second. Now, the prophecy comes, verses 13 and 16. God said to Abram, while Abram was in deep sleep, and while it was dark, and while the animals were cut in half, God said, Know for certain, for absolute certain, that your seed will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. 
And then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, this prophecy ties in with what's already happened. Just as Abram has gone into deep sleep and a period of judgment where the animals are torn in half, so Israel, his descendants, are going to go into a deep sleep situation where they're near to death and it seems as if they're torn in half. But before the birds can come and devour them, God will give them resurrection and bring them back out. You see, you go down into deep sleep and then you might die or else God might give you a resurrection. That's one idea. You take these animals and you tear them in half and either the animals are going to be put back together again or else the birds are going to come down and devour them and they'll be gone. You see, the ideas are similar. You go down into deep sleep and you're either going to go all the way down and die or else you're going to come back out and be raised. You take these animals and you tear them apart, they're either going to be rocked and be eaten up by the scavengers or else they'll be put back together again and brought back to life again. That's the idea here. And that's what God says to Abram. He says, this is how it's going to be. Your descendants are going to go down into Egypt in a land that's not theirs. For a long time, that'll be Canaan, and then it'll be for the last 215 years, it'll be in actual Egypt itself. And they'll be enslaved and oppressed in varying degrees during this time. It'll get worse and worse. And it will seem that everything's going to fall apart. They'll be in deep sleep near death. They'll be torn in half. But I'm not going to let it go that far. I will move and I will strike. I will judge the nation that they're in bondage to. And I will put the pieces of the animal back together. I will bring them out of deep sleep. And I will restore them and give them this land. And as for you... You'll go to your fathers in peace. And this will happen four generations after they go into Egypt. Moses was the fourth generation. And that's all set out for us in Exodus chapter 6. And he says, it can't happen yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet filled up. I'm not going to destroy them because some of them are still righteous. But when they go too far, then it'll be like the flood. And we'll have to kill them off to make room for you. Then we actually come to the covenant-making ceremony itself in verse 17. Abram is asleep. The sun is going down. It's dark. There are these animals laid out in a row. And then it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. Got the idea? He keeps talking about how dark it is. Now it's very dark. It was very dark, and behold, a smoking oven and flaming torch that passed between the pieces. Now who is it that's taking this oath? May I be torn in half like these animals, and may the birds come and devour me if I don't keep this promise. Who is it that's making the promise? It's God. Now is it very likely that God is going to be torn in half and devoured by the birds? No, it's not very likely. That's how likely it is that God is not going to keep his promise to Abraham. God swears by himself, it says in Hebrews, since he can swear by no one greater. God says, may I be torn in half and devoured by the birds if I don't keep my promise to Abram. So Abram believes him after that. Abram already believed him. Now Abraham has to seal that God has promised that he will take the curse of the covenant on himself before 
he lets the covenant with Abram fall. Now the idea here is still one of making a new world. Very dark, takes us back to Genesis 1 verse 2. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And what does the next thing in the verse say? The earth was without form and empty, and darkness was hovering over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. It's identical. The Spirit of God. Now we have in the darkness and over this dead creation with these animals all dead, we have the glory of God, this flaming fire that represents God's Spirit. That hovers over the pieces and goes between them. And that is the idea of a new creation. A new light, a new world, a new creation. The old creation destroyed by sin. And now a new creation that the Spirit will bring out of the dead carcass of the old creation. God will bring new life. And so, he says, On that day, verse 18, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. Expression in Hebrews, cut a covenant, because you cut the animals in half. And Abram said to your seed, I have given this land. Judgment's already passed. Legally, it's yours. You won't take possession for another 400 years, but it's yours legally. You've got the paper. I'm giving it to you. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, and then he lists ten tribes. Kenite, Kenizzite, Cabanite, Hittite, Perizzite, Rephaim, Amorite, Canaanite, Girgashite, and Jebusite. Ten of them. The idea of total new creation. Abraham and his people will be the replacement for the fallen world and the ten wicked nations here. And that's the promise God makes to Abraham, and that's the promise that God fulfills in Jesus Christ. He was the one who suffered for our sins, and in a sense was ripped in half for our sins. His body was torn, but the birds did not devour him. God did not allow his body to remain in death and to suffer corruption. And so, after three days of deep sleep, and after three days of being torn in half, before the birds could come, God granted Jesus' resurrection and restored history and made a new world. So out of that darkness that the world had fallen into, a new light came. That's the meaning of this passage, and that's the promise to Abram. He would have the land, and he can be sure, because God says, if I don't keep this promise, then may I be torn in half and devoured by birds. Why didn't that happen? And that's still true with us today. God has promised that if we're faithful and if we believe in him and if we say amen to his words, if we stay in fellowship with him, that he will give us eternal life. And regardless of whether we see it all here today, we have it. And we will have more and more of it as history moves on. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.